Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Galatians. I invite you to turn there with me. We're going to read a very large passage of scripture today. Um, I'm going to be kind of skipping around, so I'll, I'll try to help you stay with me. But, but do open your uh, Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to read from uh, verse 6 in chapter 1 all the way through verse 14 of chapter 3. Uh, but again, I'll, I'll skip a couple of things here and there, so uh, stay with me. Uh, we believe that the Apostle Paul is writing this, uh, a letter to a church, a church just like ours, or churches uh, that represent churches like ours. Uh, but he's writing these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, these words come to us today with authority and power. So let's hear together the word of Christ. Galatians 1, beginning in verse 6. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were trying to please man, I would, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and how I was advancing in Judaism behind many of my, the people, uh, any of my peers. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers." But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I was changed. Verse 7 of chapter 2, skip there with me. But when the leaders of the church in Jerusalem saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and that they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having been begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would, justifies the, would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God, uh, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But if the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. You know what you want? And you know what I want? It's the blessing of Abraham. You want that. I know you do. Now, you don't call it the blessing of Abraham. You call it... I want to live a good life. You call it, I want to be happy. I want to do something that matters. I want to live the American dream. You call it all sorts of things. But, but what you want and what I want is the blessing of Abraham. Abraham found favor with God. Abraham found favor with his fellow man. He was blessed by God. God said to him, I will bless you. I will bless your offspring. You want that. I want that. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless your friends and I'm going to curse your enemies. <laughs> you want the blessing of Abraham. I want the blessing of Abraham. But how do you get it? How do you really find this kind of favor with the Lord? And, and the answer is in this text and in so many texts in the New Testament, the answer is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, the good news that through Christ, through faith in Christ, we can find the blessing of Abraham. 
Now, there is a lot going on in this text. And, and again, we usually don't take such a big chunk of text, but I think it's important. One of my critiques of kind of modern expositional preaching is it, it, it often just has too narrow of a form of preaching. It's verse by verse or pericope after pericope, and that's good. So again, I'm, I think that's a good way to study the Bible, but it's not the only way to study the Bible. In fact, sometimes I think we should look at longer pieces of Scripture in order to kind of get the thought arc of what's really going on in a bigger swath or a bigger chunk of the Bible. And that's, that's what I want to try to look at with you today, to get this whole argument here that the Spirit is instructing us with. So, so three things, and, and again, there's a lot we could look at today, but three things that I want us to think about today as we think about Paul and the Spirit of God's kind of thought arc or instruction here. Number one is our need for the gospel. Number two is a warning against counterfeit gospels. And number three is the true gospel. So first of all, our need for the gospel. Now, I, I want to take a little pause here. When, when we started Christ's covenant, and I think that you got this in your bulletins in the way, did you get the little cards, the little, uh, yeah, there you go. We, 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 we kind of created this idea. I think we have the image up here. We wanted to be a people centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what Christ has done for us. We wanted to be a kingdom people, living out the kingdom ethics of God, being a display of God's kingdom as we scatter to the watching world. And we wanted to be a people that we were on mission for God. We wanted to be obedient to the things that God had called us to do. And so, and so around these kind of core convictions, we, we placed these values, and, and we said, we want these values, these things to be true of us. And, and when I say us, I mean us. This is not just me or our staff or how we're leading. It's we are the body. We are the church. We want these things to be true of us individually, so they'll be true of us corporately. And so these values that we set forth were, first of all, gospel centrality. We want to be a church that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that believe that our hope, our hope for the blessing of Abraham, our hope for any sort of blessing from God is only through the gospel. It's only through Christ. The center of our lives is the gospel, not, not business success with a couple of good Christian principles, not a healthy family life with some nice Christian ethics. No, we, we want the core of who we are to be a gospel people. But we also want to be a people of gospel clarity. And I'm going to be talking about this Today, there's a lot of people that claim the gospel, right? You, the gospel is one of those words that's turned around. You go to every church in Atlanta, you go to a lot of people, and they say they, they, they're, they're centered on the gospel, but, but are they? Is this a pure or a clear gospel? And we want to be a people of gospel fluency. And, we want to, and what we mean by this is that we know how to apply the gospel to our lives. How does the gospel speak to who you are as a father, or a mother, or a businessman, or a neighbor, or a worker, or a worshiper, or somebody who eats food, or somebody who exercises? How does the gospel apply to every little facet of your life? We also said that we want to be a kingdom family. Meaning that as we gather together, we display the gospel truth of our lives. We love one another. Uh, we love one another as the people of God. But we also want to be kingdom ambassadors, people who represent Jesus as we scatter, representatives of his kingdom work on earth. And we want to be people that are on mission for God, that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves, that we use our lives, our abilities to serve those around us, but also people that make disciples, obeying the great commission of our Lord Jesus. We teach others 
how to live out this gospel, how to follow in the way of Christ, not only here in Atlanta, but all throughout the entire earth. And then around these values, we've created a lot of behaviors, and we'll We'll get to those. We talk about those all the time here. These things that we say, hey, these are, these are disciplines that need to be true in your life so that these values will take root in your life. But all of this begins with the gospel. Thomas last week kind of talked about the second piece of this pie, the, this kingdom piece, this relational discipleship piece that's so central to who we are. But, but this week I want to hone in on the value of gospel clarity. Gospel Clarity. What is the gospel? And, and I, I, I belabor this point today, and I almost wish I had, you know, several weeks on just gospel clarity. Because your propensity and mine, okay, is to pursue the blessing of Abraham, to pursue favor with God through the law. We always start to do this. It's what's happening here but it, this is not very distant from us. We, we just are prone to this. And we even have these very clear warnings, like look at verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But still, even with warnings like this all throughout the Bible, all throughout the New Testament, we... We still rely on the law in order to receive the blessing of Abraham, in order to receive favor with God. Now, I don't want you to miss this. If you're new to Bible study, uh, I don't want you to miss what's going on here and how you kind of study the Bible. One of the kind of helpful ideas that you know Tolkien and Lewis kind of put forth in the 20th century was understanding the Bible as the true myth, okay? So we understand the Bible as true. We understand the events of the Bible as things that really occurred. So for example, we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, that there was the bodily resurrection of Christ. We believe that Jesus really turned water into wine. We believe that the people of Israel really crossed the Red Sea. So these things that we read in the Bible, we don't read them as false myth or as fictional myth. We read them as truth, but we understand, and this is what Tolkien and Lewis are, are so helpful in, that, that there is, there's more going on in the Bible. There's this kind of myth power of the Bible. And what I mean by that is you can find your life in these stories. You can find your identity in these stories. So the Bible is not just about an ancient people, right? It's not just about ancient people and their interaction with God. It's, it's actually about you and your interaction with God and how you can know God. Now, most of you, right, aren't pursuing the blessing of Abraham through the law of Israel. But all of you and me have this propensity to pursue God's favor, to pursue the blessing of Abraham, to pursue the right life through some law, through some sort of righteousness, through, through some sort of behavior that we can look at ourselves and say, I've done a good job. You know, if you've been around here, I talk about the Atlanta narrative, right? The Atlanta narrative. You know, how, do you, how do you find favor with God and man in Atlanta? You go to a good college, you get a good job, you get married to the right person, you have a couple of kids, you know, you, you work hard, you close the deal, you remodel your house, and you go on an awesome vacation. And if you can do that, you're, you're justified. You're somebody in this town. But there's all sorts of laws. 
I recently read this book, or I read it last year, that was really helpful. It's called The Anxious Age by Joseph Bottoms. And he's a historian, he's, he's, a, he's a Catholic, but Joseph Bottoms kind of has in this book this great conclusion that American Protestantism is really what gave shape kind of to American life. Um, it gave shape kind of to our morality, our culture. Uh, he uses as an example, if any of you have ever seen the musical The Music Man, he uses this as an example. It's about a town in Iowa, classic 20th century American town, River City, Iowa. And River City, Iowa was not unlike many towns in 20th century America where you have a Protestant church uh, you know, all around the town square, you have the Baptist church, the Presbyterian church, the Episcopalian church, the Methodist church. That, and these churches and their Christianity kind of gave a shape, a moral framework to life in that town. And what Bottom says is, that's interesting, is that the kind of Christianity that you, you saw in those churches may have been a Christianity that actually wasn't very Christian, but it had a sense of moral obligation a sense of moral superiority, a sense of moral structure. So if you've seen the musical The Music Man, you know, one of the ways that you proved your morality in River City, Iowa, was that you didn't go down to the pool hall. Because at the pool hall, there was trouble, right? There's trouble in River City. That starts with T. That rhymes with P. And that stands for pool. So not a lot of musical fans in here. But you know this kind of morality. You know, in the 20th century, you don't dance. You don't drink alcohol. You don't do these things. There's a, there's a moral structure, framework in place. This is how you achieve morality or a good standing with God and with your fellow man. Now, a lot of this moral framework, again, some of it was Christian. Some of it was a Christianity that wasn't very Christian. Um, there, a lot of, in a lot of these settings, there wasn't a lot of forgiveness or mercy. In a lot of these settings, there was a blind eye turned toward racial injustice. A lot of these settings, there was great concern with status and what you have achieved. A Christianity that wasn't very Christian. But what makes the book so interesting is that, that Bottoms argues that this type of Protestantism that he calls it, this need for a moral framework, this need for righteousness still exists in America today. It's still kind of the, the center channel of America today. But what he says is that the righteousness that we are seeking now may be a different kind of righteousness than your grandmother had, who was a member of the Presbyterian Church in River City, Iowa. But the impulse for righteousness for moral superiority, for knowing that you're doing the right thing and that that group is not doing the right thing, that impulse is still there. So in River City, Iowa, it may have been not going to the pool hall, but today it may be not buying a particular product or not voting for a particular candidate or for voting for a candidate or for posting this on social media or for not posting this on social media. There's a lot of ways that we're proving our righteousness today, to proving that we're a patriot or proving that we are woke or proving that we're not really privileged, we're not really the oppressor, proving that we are actually oppressed or whatever it is today, that there is an impulse for this kind of moral superiority that's not different from the, the impulse that the woman had in River City, Iowa 60 years ago. The action morality 
may be different, but the instinct for morality and a moral superiority is the same. But here's the deal. Neither law, your grandmother's law or your modern law, neither law really leaves you feeling justified. It neither, it doesn't really leave you feeling like you've done enough. That's why the book is called An Anxious Age. This is what justification by law always leaves you feeling anxious, nervous, with anxiety. Have I done enough? Have I lived up to the standard? Is somebody going to see me doing something wrong? Now, here's the tricky part for you and for me living in this age. A lot of the laws of the age around us all the time have a Christian label. They have a Christian scent. Oftentimes, these laws are actually labeled gospel. And this is why gospel clarity is so important and is so necessary. This is why we so need this moment. It's hard to discern sometimes between River City Christianity and actual Christianity. Even in a secular age, when so many secular people around us are crying out for things that are just and good, it's hard to discern between secular justice and biblical justice. In this over-politicized age, when one side says, we are right, we are the defenders of the truth, and the other side is evil, and the other side's saying the same thing, we are right and they are evil, it's hard to not go wholesale in with one side or the other. Which leads me to the second point here, and this is a warning against counterfeit gospels. Uh, this, this idea, counterfeit gospels, has been talked about by Trevin Wax and, and many others, but counterfeit gospels are gospels that pose as the gospel. They pose as the pathway to the blessing of Abraham, but they aren't really the gospel. This is what Paul is addressing in chapter 1. Look at verse 6 again with me of chapter 1. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You could say a counterfeit gospel. Not that there is another one. There's only one real gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel should preach a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be a curse. Now, again, I could do a whole series on just this idea of counterfeit gospel and ways that people pervert the gospel, add to the gospel, or take away from the gospel, and in so doing, preach a false gospel. Now, in this case, the particular kind of case study here, the, the, the counterfeit gospel at play here is the circumcision gospel, right? In order to be a Christian, it's not just by hearing in faith, it's by being circumcised. You, you have to be a circumcised, you have to be circumcised to be a Christian. And here's how counterfeit gospels work. They take something that's not the gospel and they make it primary. They make it primary of, of more importance than of faith, hearing in faith in Christ. Now, these, these other things that become primary, here's what's so tricky about them. They may actually be really good things. They may be things that are 
results of the gospel. There's a difference between the gospel and the result of the gospel or an action that flows out of the gospel. Gospel perversion happens or counterfeit gospels are born when secondary things become primary things and when primary things become secondary things. I want you to hear that. Gospel perversion happens. Counterfeit gospels are born when secondary things, these can be really good things, become primary things. And when primary things become secondary things. So for example, one counterfeit gospel that's incredibly prevalent, has been prevalent throughout the history of the church, is the moralism gospel. It's a gospel that basically says the way to righteousness, the way to the blessing of Abraham is to live a good moral life, or at least to be perceived as living a good moral life. And so moralism talks a lot about Jesus, but it also talks a lot about the things that you have to do, like church attendance, good moral behavior. And, and what happens in this gospel perversion is these things, these moral things actually become more important than the work of Christ. This is the River City gospel, right? How are you justified in River City? Don't go to the pool room, right? Your confession of Christ is maybe secondary, but stay away from the pool room. That's a moralism gospel. Now, of course, again, I want to be clear. In Christ, if you know Christ, if, if you've died to self and are alive in Christ, there is morality, right? There is a moral framework that we as Christians live by. But you get when you get the gospel out of order, when, when Jesus and what he has done for us become secondary and our moral responsibilities become primary, this leads to division, this leads to pride, this leads to anger, it leads to a lack of compassion and mercy and all the rest. This Christianity, that's not very Christian. Another gospel, counterfeit gospel, is the social justice gospel. This would say that the real important thing about being a Christian is social action, caring for the poor, caring for the oppressed, caring for caring about racial equality, being active to do those things. Again, social action is a result of the gospel. When Jesus came, he had enormous compassion for the poor and for the oppressed. But when the results of the gospel, secondary things, become primary, become the means of our salvation, you have a big problem. And this is why the social justice counterfeit gospel and is really hollowed out so many American churches that have given up on doctrine, that have given up on the centrality of Christ, that have given up on the exclusivity of Christ and the inerrancy of his word, because it's been replaced by social action. Again, social action is a necessary response to the gospel, but it is secondary, not primary. Another counterfeit gospel that we're seeing around us very prevalent today is, is what I'll call, I guess, just a patriot gospel. And it's a gospel that has something to do with Jesus, but more to do with the preservation of our nation. And there was a, um, 10 years ago, Glenn Beck led this rally in Washington, D.C. Glenn Beck is a Mormon. And after the rally, it was kind of posted, Glenn Beck is the leader of American evangelicalism, okay? Now, again, the only problem here is 
Glenn Beck is not really an American evangelical, right? He's, he's a Mormon. He, he believes in a false gospel. After the rally, he, Glenn Beck was being interviewed with an American evangelical leader, and the evangelical leader was asked about this. And he said, and this is a quote, we can argue about theology later after we save the country. This is what I'm talking about in a nutshell here. This is, this is such a precise example. Americans, and especially American Christians, do have a political stewardship, right? We, we have a great political stewardship. I, I hope you all participated in this recent election cycle. But that political stewardship is a secondary thing. It is something that flows out of our true identity as followers of Christ. And when you get those out of order, what you have and this can be very dangerous, is a counterfeit gospel. Wanting Amer Americans wanting to have the values of our country to reflect a biblical worldview is important. As a Christian American, you should want that. But this is of secondary importance. It is not of primary importance in our confession of the gospel. Again, I wish I had more time here because there's so many counterfeit gospels out there. There's the American success gospel, the Christian principles gospel, the health and wealth gospel, so many others. But I resonate with Paul here, who says to these Galatians who had fallen victim to the circumcision gospel, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And here's the thing with a counterfeit. I want you to be warned in this. A counterfeit makes you feel rich. If you had a million dollars in counterfeit money in your pocket, you know what? you'd feel rich. You'd feel like you had so much money until you went to go spend it. And then you realize it's a counterfeit. It's worthless. This is so serious. You know, I prayed to God today that he would just give me great compassion for you as a shepherd to sheep because I so want to warn you from any, from any false gospel or false gospel teacher that would lead you to a counterfeit that would one day lead you to the throne of God bankrupt. Trusting in some law, trusting in some secondary thing that's a law, and not trusting in Jesus, who is our only hope. But what I want to do with the rest of the time is just take a moment to tell you how counterfeit gospels form and how you can be kept from them, because we're all susceptible to this. And the one word answer is, how do counterfeit gospels form? Discipleship. <laughs> Discipleship. You are being discipled all the time. You leave here, and everyone is saying to you, follow me, follow me, follow me. I will give you the blessing of Abraham. You know, as I said in this email this week, there are a lot of loveless pastors out there. That's Blake's word, and I love it. There's the internet pastor. There's the podcast pastor, the news anchor pastor, the Twitter pastor, the book pastor. And here's the deal. These pastors may have a lot of good resources, but, but if, 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 you're, if you're only living in a world of loveless pastors, you can be deceived, and I can be deceived. What you and I need for gospel purity, these four things, 
You need God's word, God's people, God's story, and you need to be a part of God's mission. You need God's word. What does Paul say? If, if anyone comes preaching a different gospel, let them be accursed. The gospel that we can trust is the revelation of Christ himself, what Christ has revealed. And I just want to say, I, I, I so fear for any Christian who spends 10 hours a week consuming social media or consuming news media and 10 minutes a week consuming God's word. I so fear for you. You, you are giving yourself to loveless pastors and not to the truth of God. So you need God's word, you need God's people. If you aren't in proximity with other Christians who can challenge you, who can speak to you, if you are unwilling to be corrected or warned by other Christians, then you are in a dangerous place. Look at chapter two. What do we see in chapter two? Who is being corrected? I want you to hear this. You're not above this. I'm not above this. Who's being corrected in chapter two? Peter <laughs> and Barnabas. I mean, Peter is like the best Christian ever. This is Peter. This is the one that upon whom his ministry and his confession of Christ, Jesus is going to build his church. This is the rock of the church. This is Peter. This guy's, Peter is arguably more godly than even Blake Rogers, right? And yet Peter and Barnabas, you know Barnabas? I want to be like Barnabas, the son of encouragement, this faith. He sold everything he had and gave it to the church. This guy, these are the ones that are falling victim to the loveless pastors of their day. They're the ones that are being bewitched. They're the ones that are needing correction. And here's the deal. I need it too. You need it too. This is why we need each other. This is why, you know, you know look, I totally understand the risk. And if you're watching online, but this is why we need one another. This is why we need to be gathering together. It's, it's really hard. You know, if, if, if you're only giving and receiving correction on social media or over even text message, that's not going to leave you, lead you in a safe place. We need God's word. We need God's people. We need to be a part of God's story. You know, something that loveless pastors do is they tell you a story that's all about you, that gives you a rise, that makes you important, that makes you feel like you're somebody. They can teach you in the business success story, the Atlanta narrative story, the American story, the Democratic story, the Republican story, the justice story, whatever. Here's the deal. What is your story about? How do you know if you're in God's story? And here, I'll go simple. I'll tell you right now. You know you're in God's story when your story is about God. Is the story that you're kind of finding your identity about God, about his kingdom, about his glory, or is it about you living a comfortable and successful life? About you being known? What story are you finding yourself in? What story, what story do you like hearing that you're being told? And then fourth, you need to be a part of God's mission. You know, I talk to so many Christians in this time that are frustrated, they're upset about this or that. They have good ideals, they have high ideals, but they have no meaningful action. You are called as the people of God to be on mission with God. And so I just want to say, if you're frustrated, 
If you have a high ideal, say this should be this way, it should be that way, what are you doing? Who are you discipling? Who are you engaging with? If you're frustrated with what young people believe, what young person are you discipling? If you're, if you're frustrated about racial injustice, what, 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 what person are you giving your life to? You know, there, there's so many opportunities. If you're, if you're frustrated about, the, about the, you know, the schools, run for school board, run for city council, go do something, go take meaningful action. As I said in the sermon that I did online a few weeks ago, you are God's workmanship. There's not like these other Christians out there that do the stuff. You are those people. You are God's workmanship. Are you finding yourself in God's mission? As people of God's word, as people among God's people in God's story on mission for him. So we've talked about our need for the gospel of warning against counterfeit gospels. But lastly, in this time that we have the true gospel, and here is where the true gospel is so different than your grandmother's River City morality or today's modern secular morality. It's so different from the circumcision gospel or the patriot gospel or the social justice gospel. And here's what it is. It's not a justification that comes by law. It's not a justification that comes by law. It's a justification that comes through faith in Jesus. It's, it's not a justification that comes by your achievement. It's not a justification that comes by some man-made system and how well you do with it. It's a, it's a justification that comes only through faith in Christ. Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 2, I died to the law. I died to the law so that I might live to God. And I just want you to do this. If anybody was justified by the law, if anybody had done the thing, it was Paul. And Paul was educated. He was a religious leader. He was a thought leader. He was respected. He was successful. If Paul lived in Atlanta today, he would be the guy that went to the Ivy League school. He would be the guy that was a staple member of some local church. He would be the guy that was a good, successful businessman that knew how to keep everything in place. He dotted all the I's. He crossed all the T's. He had all the right uh, sensitivity seminar trainings in his business that he was supposed to have. He went to all the right functions. He was a part of the right club. He remodeled his house every five years, not too excessive, but enough to stay up with the times. But he was anxious. Always having to prove himself. That's actually why he was going to Damascus, to prove himself, to put down the church, to prove how much he loved God. And then Paul meets Jesus. And he realized how small all of his achievements were and how good Jesus is. And I love that he says this in 20, how much he loved him. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, you were, you were all made by God. I was made by God. We were all made by God to be in God's presence, to be God's people. But our sin... Our disobedience to God has broken our fellowship with him. And it's left our souls disjointed. Dorothy Sayers says, sin is a deep interior dislocation of the soul. You ever have a bone out of joint dislocated? 
what Dorothy Sayers says is his sin has kind of left your whole soul permanently out of joint. It's a dislocation, and we feel this dislocation. That's why we're anxious. That's why we're always trying to follow the law, to do the right thing, to prove ourselves to this group or to that group. I want the blessing of Abraham. I want people to say that I've done the right thing. And what I am telling you is the only way back in, the only way to, to get that soul back in location is faith in Jesus. Paul says, I died to the law. I gave up on my River City ethics. I gave up on my postmodern ethics so that I might live to God, so that in Christ I might actually have an identity in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Have you been crucified with Christ? Have you been crucified with Christ? Is the old man in you being put to death or is the old man at you, this desire for importance, this desire for achievement of law, is that man at war with Christ in you? He says, the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what I want for our church? I want us to be a people that so identify with Jesus, that so identify with him, that, that that's, that's all that's seen. That all these other distortions and laws, that, that, that all of these other false gospels out there would, would have no place here. And when they start to creep up, we would correct one another in love because we care about one another. We'd call one another back on the mission of God, back into the story of God. Oh, I, I so want Jesus to be known here that anything that is not of Jesus would not be known here. And the true Jesus, the real Jesus, I want you to hear this. He's so good. Oh, he's so good, and he loves you so much. The gospel is this. is that you, when you're confronted by God himself, you know, Jesus makes us uncomfortable. He is light. And when light shines in dark places and reveals who we really are, it can be scary. But I want you to hear this. Jesus is so good. He reveals light to us. He reveals truth to us. But hear this. He offers a justification when you feel convicted, not by law, but by faith. And so when the light of truth shines on you, your response shouldn't be, I've got to do more. I've got to do more. I've got to do. No, your response should be to trust in what Jesus has done, to look to him. Jesus is the kind of Lord that shows up and totally convicts you and totally leaves you feeling crucified. Yet then he opens his arms and shows you his wounds and shows you that he took on all of our idolatry and sin and disobedience and false gospels. He took all of that on and died for us, died in our place on the cross, facing the wrath of God. Jesus comes, he shines light on you, and then he opens his arms to you. This is so different. We live in a cancel culture, don't we? If somebody doesn't agree with you, you cancel them. Or if you correct somebody, even if you do it kind of nice, they cancel you. You must be wrong. You're deceived. You're wrong. Jesus has this way of coming to us, showing us our heart, showing us how much we need him, and then opening his scarred hands to us and saying, hey, come. Come back to me. I love you. I gave myself for you. 
And so Paul says, and I want to say, I want to die. I, I want to be crucified with him. I want everything that is Jason D's, that lives in this false world, you know, this skull-sized kingdom where Jason D's is the center of everything. I want all of that to die. And I want to find my true identity, the identity that I actually was created to have in God through Christ. I want Jason D's to die so that the life that I live now in the flesh, I would live by faith in Jesus, following Jesus to what is true and whole and right and life-giving. And I want that for you, too. So let's pray and ask that God would clarify his gospel in our hearts and give us faith to believe it. Father, I pray now that in this world of counterfeit gospels, in this world of falsehood all around us where we can easily be bewitched, that you would, that you would make us a gospel people, that you would put to death in us all that is not, not Christ, and that you would raise to life in us all that is that the life that we now live, we would live by faith in Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us, who calls us into right fellowship with you, the almighty God. Grant us this today, Lord. Give us this kind of faith we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's the kind of sermon, today's the kind of day that inevitably brings up a lot of questions. In fact, as I was writing the sermon, I had all these follow-up questions for myself, but I just didn't have time to get to them. And so I just want to invite you. We have a really good tool for this. It's called our Text to Pastor line. We, we love hearing from you. You can text it. A lot of y'all have my number. You can text me. You can email us. We'd love to hear from you if there's something that is confusing or pressing on your heart. That's also a really good way to respond. You know, maybe the Lord is doing something in your life today. And there's something that you just, you want to confess before a brother or sister, and you want help on how to follow Jesus more faithfully. I love that. I want to do that. I, I, I'm surrounded by wonderful men and women that, that also can, can be that friend to you to help you follow Jesus more faithfully. And so I ask you to respond. If, if God's doing that in your heart, use that text to Pastor Line. I always stand over here after the service. And even now as we sing, come find me. I'd love to pray with you. Um, but we want to give you opportunity to respond and to resolve these things in your heart. But now as we meditate on, on what we just heard, I invite you to stand. And, and let's be reminded that we have great hope. We have great hope in Jesus. We have great hope today in Jesus. We have great hope in Jesus, even when we die. So let's, let's remind ourselves of these things as we sing.